then what do you do? Mama, It we... is very difficult to explain. Well, if you'd rather not... Now, David, please, I'm trying to find out something. Herr Muller, may I ask it right out? Let me help you, madam. I'm an anti-fascist. But we're all anti-fascists. Yes, Mama, but court works at it. Hello, and welcome to Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week, we are closing in on the end of 1943 with not very famous Antifa film, Watch on the Rhine, which is the middle one of the anti-fascist trio in this year. And shockingly good. Like, for all it had going against it, that we sort of learned from the first of these that you're kind of not actually allowed to be anti-fascist because of the Hayes office, which was apparently a lot of drama in the production of this film. Um, and also because fucking Betty Davis. Wait, the Hayes Code was like, no, we can't be anti-Nazi? The Hayes Code suggested that the lead of this- No, no I know what you're talking about with the death part. Yeah, yeah. Which we'll get to. Yeah. The, no spoilers before the end of us telling the story. Yeah. Yeah, but that wasn't like, don't be anti-fascist. It was just a very specific thing. No, just... Which they definitely fudged, by the way. Right. But, like, one of the points of this movie is that you can't just go, like, I am anti-fascist and then sit there self-satisfied. Like, you have to actually take action. And the Hayes Code stance is, actually don't. Actually, you're not allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> or you can. You just can't take a certain... Well, we'll, just, we'll get into the plot, and then this will all make more sense. Yeah. Because it's pretty straightforward. Uh, yeah. I I would say the only not straightforward thing is kind of also the only problem I have with this movie, besides the Betty Davis of it all, which is that the first 20 minutes, it's kind of hard to get a bead on what is important and what is happening. Mm. Because we start with this family crossing over the Mexican border into the United States, and the children are weirdly well-spoken to the degree that you're like, oh God, is this a cute kid movie? Is this an anti-fascist cute kid movie? Oh, and the youngest kid is insufferable. For sure. The movie also thinks that he's insufferable, but I did have that thought of, if this is what we are going to have to put up with for nearly two hours, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. <laughs> yeah. Then you jump over to this family of rich people who live just outside of D.C., and it honestly takes you about 10 minutes to figure out that this is the family of the wife of the family who was crossing over the Mexican border. And until then, it's just this weird rich person melodrama about a Nazi sympathizing... Next door neighbor. What is it, Prussian? Yeah, well, he's their guest, and he's like a count or something? I forget. Uh, yeah, he's a count from... Not Yugoslavia. Somewhere. Right. It doesn't really matter. It's somewhere sort of tangential to in between Russia and Germany. Yeah, and... Hungary? Is he Hungarian? Maybe he's Hungarian. He might be Hungarian. It is weird. He has no accent that's not just a regular standard issue British theater accent. Anyway... He has a wife who is not a terrible Nazi and has sort of this flirtatious attraction to David, the son of the household, who is Betty Davis's character's brother. Though, again, it takes a minute to pick up on that. It takes until I think that scene where you go to the German embassy is where the movie locked in for me. But it takes about 20 minutes for this movie to like lock in. Oh, we are actually in a movie with really biting commentary against fascism and against people who stand idly by against fascism. I was really glad to have taken a break until the election when watching this, because I'm not sure I could have taken the specificity mm. of the anti-fascist shit in it. There's this great line at the German embassy with, I don't know, the attache. He's not the ambassador, but he's sort of doing the ambassador's work while the ambassador just runs around and plays tennis and does whatever the fuck he wants. <laughs> Talks about the party they've just had and how people come to the party, despite the fact they don't like Nazis very much. 
And he goes every morning that Herr Fuhrer disturbs their delicate sensibilities. And then every evening by night, they've calmed down. One might almost question their morality. (laughs) (laughs) There are some killer, killer lines in this movie, many of which come from Lucille Watson, who plays the very wealthy widow of a Supreme Court justice and Betty Davis's mother. (laughs) She has the sharpest tongue and is awful to everybody yeah but somehow it's okay because she's just an old lady who has earned that right i guess there's that and she's also very self-conscious about it she is aware that she is kind of awful to everyone to the point that she describes herself as being awful to everyone she's really great and that for me is not when the movie locked in as far as plot or theme but that was the point where i went all right i'm invested i don't know what's happening but i'm here for this lady yeah The moment the movie really locks in, I guess, is probably where Betty Davis shows up with her family, because that's also where you finally understand the deal. Betty Davis has sort of a big explanatory monologue uh, that her husband, played by Paul Lucas, one, will actually be the lead of this film, thank you, and two, um, is actively part of Antifa, actually. A literal resistance against the Nazis. Right. I love the way she ends up putting it because she goes, he's an anti-fascist. And the sort of old bitty grandmother goes, well, we're all anti-fascist here. And Betty Davis goes, yes, but he works at it. (laughs) (laughs) That's his job, mom. Yeah. Like the last seven years, that's just what he's been doing as his job. And quite literally, he's been smuggling people in and out of Germany, raising money to help people who are resisting the Nazis, 20,000 of which is in a briefcase that they have brought with them. Yes. As he says, that money isn't theirs, though. There's God, this movie's so good, but it's a little bit slow moving. It's kind of weirdly a parlor drama. Because once they arrive, if the German sympathizing count is going to figure out uh, Kurt is the name of the husband who is an anti-fascist, if the Count is going to figure out Kurt's whole deal and what he's going to do when he figures it out. And he breaks into this attaché case with $10,000 in it, which is 108... No, it's 20000 that's in there, which is like... Enough to buy a home in 1943, because they say 10000 is $180,000 in today's money. So I guess not enough to buy a home. Oh, millennials. You could buy a home for like $5,000, and it was fairly nice <laughs> at that time. Yeah. Not enough to buy a home today. <laughs> exactly. I was Even with inflation. <laughs> I was trying to make that joke. But it is weirdly made of specifics because the plot description itself is essentially the Count does find out about it. The Count goes to the Nazis and figures out that Kurt is not only anti-fascist, but a very high-placed member of the anti-fascist resistance. He goes into Germany. He starts setting up pirate radio stations that are anti-Nazi pirate radio stations. He goes on rescue missions for other members of the anti-fascist resistance. He goes around every country in Europe that's being held by fascists and does missions all around, taking his family with him, and is just generally rad as shit. And it has taken a pretty big toll on him. Yeah, it's interesting in the film, I couldn't tell if he was supposed to be a lot older than Betty Davis's character, who at some point says that she's 38. Mm -hmm. Paul Lucas is actually 12 years older than Betty Davis, and he looks it. But I think it was actually a really good choice because it felt earned. Though he does say that he was a veteran of World War One, So he would be pretty old for a person who's running around being like anti-fascist Batman. Yeah, I got the sense that his career before he became an anti-fascist full-time was that he was an engineer. So I sort of got the sense that she had traveled to Europe and he was sort of this charming older man, professional worldly smart guy that swept her off her feet a little bit and then the nazis came to power and he went well this is my fucking life now um and she went yeah i guess it is right i get the sense he is supposed to be older than her but probably didn't look quite as much older than her when they met it felt more like a six to eight year age difference than decade plus. And then, you know, you have the Nazis try and take your fingernails out from the beds enough times 
it ages a man. I would say so. <laughs> Especially when you're having to worry about your children at the same time. Which, uh, that's an interesting thing here where he's taking the kids around. Because a lot of people would, and I think justifiably have a criticism of that because he's putting his children in danger. But at the same time, he's keeping them close. And at this point, he's high enough up and is wanted enough that not keeping them close would put them in more danger. One of the reasons it was hard for me to get a bead on what this movie was about is I think in retrospect, it's fairly clear what this movie is about fairly quickly. I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe that this movie was about a sort of, yeah, anti-fascist vigilante hero attempting to bring his family to America just so he could rest for a single solitary fucking moment and having that disrupt the lives of comfortable upper class supposedly anti-fascist Americans until their eyes are opened and they realize the real threat of fascism and that they have to make sacrifices and do things too. And then they do them. Right. <laughs> And I was like, well, surely the movie settles into being one of the shittier movies that this looks like it could be. And isn't that rad as hell thing? Surely it can't strike that balance. And I think one of the things is like, yeah, Kurt does a lot of... Re it's really complicated. He brings his family around, but he has a defense for it. And it's a good defense. People come to him and go like, you have kids. And he goes, everybody's got kids. Everybody's got something. Everybody would have a reason not to fucking fight the Nazis. And once you start doing that, then you don't do what you have to do. He has this line, my children are not the only children in the world. And that for me was like, damn. Yeah. I mean, of course he's concerned about his children, but he's concerned about all of the children that are going to lose their parents or their own lives or whatever under fascism. So, yeah, I've got kids. So does everybody. <laughs> the movie does not shy away from the fact that this has kind of fucked those kids up. What read as them being precocious is actually them. I think he even says at one point, like, we took their childhoods away. Our kids didn't have a childhood. They're like multilingual fucking ubermensch genius children who are willing to do whatever it takes to sacrifice to fight against fascism, but they're not kids anymore. It really turns this thing where you're like, oh God, there are going to be these insufferable kids into they have learned how to be polite so as to be invisible right. because no one cares about polite children. They know better than to draw attention to their family. Let's get to this thing that I sort of can't say yet because we haven't gotten there in the plot, uh, which is the Count opens this attaché case, finds the money, and goes to the Nazis and finds out Kurt's identity. And comes back and not only reveals, I know who you are, he also reveals that the sort of leader of the anti-fascist resistance, a very close friend of Kurt's, who he's been working with for years. Max oh, Max Friedrich. Friedrich, yeah. Yeah. Max Friedenk has been arrested, and Kurt immediately goes, well, fuck, I have to go back to Europe and attempt to rescue him. It's not impossible. It's super unlikely, but it's not impossible, and it's what has to be done. And if he's going to do it, he absolutely has to shut up this count, because if the count goes to the Nazis, they will, as Kurt says, not just capture him, but wait and follow him and roll up the entire resistance movement with him roll up basically everybody that Kurt knows in the resistance. Mm -hmm. And so the Count tries to blackmail them for $10,000, which is 180 grand in today's money. Kurt, even though he has $20,000 in the attaché case, refuses to give it to him because that's not his money to give. That's money for the resistance movement. It may be in his hands, but it doesn't actually belong to him. It is, as he says, money collected from poor people who hate fascism all over the world, and he can't bargain with it. And he tells this really elegant story that sums that up so beautifully, which is that after they've flown into Mexico and they get on this incredibly long train ride from Mexico to Washington, D.C. His children were hungry and they didn't have any cash left on them that wasn't that. And he didn't buy food for himself or his children because that's not what the money is for. Right. And he says, and if I wouldn't spend it for my starving children, I would not touch it for you. <laughs> Oh, uh, yeah. Paul Lucas is really good in this movie. <laughs> he is amazing and the dialogue is amazing. But the rich grandmother and David, the brother, 
both go, well, God, if he won't pay it, we're rich, we'll pay it to shut you up. They go off and make this agreement that he'll get 2000 now and 8000 in a check post-dated long enough for Kurt to get to Europe and do this mission. Uh, and they go off to write up the post-dated check. And then they sit there and for a moment and have a seemingly polite conversation until Kurt reveals, if I were you, and I had absolutely no moral scruples and was willing to deal with the Nazis, <laughs> what I would do is get the money I could here and then just go back and make the deal with the Nazis. Because what you clearly want is a visa back to Europe, and we can't give that to you. And then he knocks him out and drags him in the backyard with a gun and kills him. Because that's the only way to be sure that he will not reveal Kurt's identity. And here is where we get into trouble with the Hayes office. <laughs> right. Because this happens surprisingly far from the end. There's about a half hour left after Kurt kills this guy. Because there is now a grim inevitability to what's happening. Betty Davis who is now absolutely the right person for the part where for the first act she was not, immediately understands that this means she's never going to see Kurt again. Win or lose, he just murdered a man on American soil. She's not getting her husband back. Doesn't say this out loud, but is immediately giving that performance. Kurt understands this and has to go talk to all of his children, have a long conversation with his oldest child who wants to come with him to try and rescue Max Friedank. And one of the things that makes it okay that they drag their kids around with them everywhere is Kurt's a really good dad. Yeah. <laughs> he has this scene where this oldest son is like, take me with you. My life is worthless. You're too important to the resistance. And he just goes, never fucking decide how important your life is. <laughs> and never make a decision based on the idea that your loss is acceptable because we don't have enough bodies. So never, ever decide that you are an acceptable loss. And he's very physically affectionate with them. He's a good dad. Yeah. It's not just that he's a good anti-fascist philosopher dad. He's also just a good dad. Yeah, which is a thing that feels very... Not unique, but I think the model in the modern day is like, he's a good man, but it makes him a bad dad. But that's okay, because he's like the world's dad, and sacrifices must be made. Yeah, and he's like, I am the world's dad, and sacrifices must be made. Doesn't mean I have to be a shitty dad to my kids. Right. It's And like, I am the world's dad, I have to do this thing that will take me away from my family forever for the sake of the world, and also I'm going to go upstairs and have a long talk with my children before I leave. And hug all of them. Because I can, and that's important. Yeah. All of these exchanges are beautiful. It's wonderful when Kurt comes back in and is so polite to Fanny, the grandmother, and David about how he has just murdered a man on their estate. And then tells them what the plan is. Right. I'm going to leave tonight. I'm going to take the car. In two days, report it missing to the police. I should be out of the country and safely, well, safely, I should be out of the country by then completely. And, you know, I'm so sorry about this, but this will at least let you off the hook. And asks them very politely, doesn't tell them, don't go to the police, asks them, just give me this two-day lead time. And they go, God, of course. And in a way where you really do consider for a moment, like, they don't have to. And this does complicate their lives. Oh, yeah. You really do consider in a way that you ordinarily don't. Like, you know, this guy's a very clearly, it is implied several times that the Count is physically abusive to his wife, like, is... Just a piece of shit all around. Goes to poker games with Nazis just for fun. I think a lot of movies would go like, good, it's great he's dead. It's great he's dead. We're just going to hand wave the fact that that would inconvenience anyone because he's a bad person and it's good that we killed a bad person. And instead, Kurt, like, agonizes over the fact that he has killed and will kill again because the world is a place that forces him to kill Nazis. It is very clear that it is going to be very disruptive to their lives that a man was murdered on their property for Fanny and David. And that they didn't say anything. Yeah. If it comes down to figuring out that they knew about this, their accessories to murder. So he is asking a big thing of them. Right. And it's recognized instead of, you know, like you said, hand waved. It was like, well, they killed the bad guy. Big deal. Yeah. 
And like I say, the movie is made up of a lot of small incidents, and there have been a lot of small incidents of it not quite clicking for Fanny and David. What the... So you just traveled around Europe for 10 years, poor and miserable? Just come here and live with us. Why are you doing all of this shit? And it is so lovely when they not only agree to that, they just are like, of course, fucking, yeah, absolutely. Here's all the money that's in our pocket. Go with God. Like, do what you have to do. God, this movie's so good. He says his goodbyes to the kids, as we've said, and says his goodbye to Betty Davis, and leaves, and then there's this final coda scene. Which I don't love, and I understand the necessity of it because of the Hayes Code. I start out hating it, and then come around to it by the end. I don't hate it, but I don't love it. I think it's a cleaner ending to end it the way that the play does with him leaving, and, you know, hoping that he and his kids and his wife are going to be together again when Germany is free. But they did the absolute possible best that they could do with having this ending essentially prescribed for them by the Hayes office. Right. Among the weirder things about it is, so Kurt has just killed a man and the Hayes office says you cannot kill someone without being prosecuted or punished in some ways for that murder. Unless it's in self-defense, which this arguably isn't. Yeah. But it arguably is. It, it super arguably is, but... But not immediately. Right. It's preemptive self-defense. The strange thing about this coda scene in the play, it ends with Kurt just leaving, and that is a very ambiguous ending. This is also an ambiguous ending. We jump ahead a couple of months, and they have not heard from Kurt. And Betty Davis is still holding out hope, but the son is very clearly planning a rescue mission of his own. How he is going to get to Europe in order to try and rescue his father when he turns 18 in a few months. And Betty Davis puts together that this is what is happening and forbids him to go. And he immediately goes, I don't think when the time comes you're going to forbid me, because you're a good woman and you're a good person, and you know that the work is never finished. If he doesn't come back, I have to go. And if I don't come back, I trust you that my little brother's going to have to go, because the fight is worth having forever. She goes, fuck, fuck, yeah, fuck, probably, fuck. Um, not like that, because the Hays Code would have even more problem with that. But that's pretty <laughs> clearly what Betty Davis is signaling. Right. What's really fascinating to me about this is, uh, apparently, the studio demanded that a new scene be added where Kurt is prosecuted. I, I don't even know what actually happened in it. Nobody knows, because... The actor who plays him just didn't show up for filming. (laughs) Like, what a fucking power move. Paul Lucas is like, no, absolutely not. Yeah. Killing a Nazi is fine. Well, not a Nazi, a Quisling. Like, technically, he's not a Nazi. He's a Nazi collaborator, but... Yeah. God, that scene where the special services... I forget what the Nazi SS calls its sort of spy ring. But there's a guy who's just perfectly cast in the German embassy whose job is very clearly to know everything about everyone. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And as they play poker, he just completely dismantles everyone in the room, just tells them all what their whole deal is and what their relationship to the Nazi party is. My favorite being he opens up talking about the attaché, who's very proper and German aristocracy, and just dismantles him by saying, you're very proper, you're a career administrator, old money aristocrat, you don't like us, but you don't like us chiefly because we're not polite. If we just acted a little better, you'd be willing to do everything we ask of you and worse. And there are so many little well-observed details like that in this movie, just small, totally inconsequential to the plot. The attaché guy completely disappears about an hour into the movie, just never comes back, never becomes a thing. But these small, well-observed moments about how fascism creeps into people's lives and how people sort of ignore it if they can, that are just fantastic outside of the core plot of Kurt being found out and having to go back to Europe. I think that's especially true with Geraldine Fitzgerald, who plays Marta, Mm -hmm. the very young countess who was married to Count Brankovic. She didn't sign up for this shit at all. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> they were married when she was super young. He's much, much older than she is. They moved to America from... Oh, he's Romanian. There we go. Yeah. I just remembered. Yes. They moved to America basically because he's broke. He's the quintessential broke European aristocrat. And he just has continuously become meaner and crueler throughout their marriage, which you get from a handful of scenes that they have together. Where she's just watched him become, essentially, I mean, he's not a Nazi, and the Nazis actually make a really big point of, you're not one of us, even though you think what we do is cool. Like, you're not classy, but I still think it's cool that you're brutal, is essentially his perspective on it. You find out his backstory, which is essentially, you know, there's that whole period in the 30s where Hitler keeps making noise about invading countries and people haven't figured out that he breaks every deal and then invades your country anyway. So they try and work out some sort of arrangement with him. And one of those very early negotiations the Count was at and essentially tried to set the price of oil to fuck over the Nazis in a way that made him a lot of money, thinking the Nazis weren't going to stick around very long. And then he miscalculated that very badly in a way that lost him a lot of money and made the Nazis hate him. And he fled Europe as a result. So he actually didn't have a great relationship with the Nazi party. It's just that now that they've won, he would like to curry favor with them. Oh, but he's sucking up to them, absolutely. And he has no, he has no issue with what it is that they're doing he's attracted to strength like it's very very clear right and there's a bit of a feeling that if they hadn't beaten him down he wouldn't be so eager to uh suck up to them oh for sure i think it's pretty explicit that he initially is repulsed by the nazi party and was kind of like well you know they're not much of a threat so fuck them they just suck and then it is only when he needs them that he starts to find them appealing because, I don't know, some people just, you know, when the boot starts stepping on you enough, you sort of decide you deserve it in some way or that the person stepping on you must be so great because they have the power to do that to you. Yeah, that's the impression that I get is that he's kind of a glutton for punishment. <laughs> yeah. That's the thing about this movie is that, like, as told, it's kind of a warmed over thriller in terms of the actual incidents of the plot. It's all these rich people in a house. You know, one of them finds something out about another one and then it escalates until there's a murder, which is like fine or whatever. It's not like that's a bad plot for a movie, but it's a little bit slight. It's a little bit one hour long Alfred Hitchcock presents, you know? Right. And it's the specificity of all of these people and the way they interact that makes this a great movie. Even the minor characters, like all the people at the German embassy I keep going on and on about. And like you say, the Count's wife, who doesn't have a whole lot of screen time. She's a fairly large character because she has the strange love triangle with David, which is only strange because of the Hayes office and the fact that it's yet another, did they have an affair? Am I supposed to think they had an affair, but the Hayes office kept you from saying they had an affair? Or are they just attracted to each other and haven't actually acted on that in any way? There's something really subtle about their interactions where it feels like he's aware of what it is that she is dealing with at home and very much wants to protect her and to give her something nice in her life, even if it's just going on picnics with his nieces and er, with his niece and nephews. And also to just get her away from him, even if it's not permanently. There, There's something about the way that... What is the brother's name? David. David. There's something about the way that he interacts with her that's actually very gentle and very moving, I think. Yeah. Donald Woods is the actor who plays David, and I have not loved him in anything else that we've seen him in, but also everything else that we've seen him in kind of sucked. <laughs> Is he in Four Smart Girls? Is he one of the interchangeable boys in Four Smart Girls? No, but he is in Anthony Adverse. Oh, he's the... Yeah. There is a kind of blankness to him that I think this movie utilizes extremely well. Yeah. A little bit, he is supposed to be playing kind of just a guy. Just a sort of good-natured handsome man. 
because both he and the mother have this interesting role of, well, nothing's going to disrupt our very calm lives. Like, we're we're good people, and good people have good, calm lives. And if people have bad lives, then tell them to stop. And he is a very interesting character because you get the sense that he knows she is in a bad situation, but feels like he shouldn't interfere, like shouldn't take any action about that bad situation in a way that's a little bit damning of him, and I think intentionally a little bit damning of him. See, I felt like the opposite was true, that he is actually trying to take action that he feels comfortable taking, and that he feels like won't endanger her. Like, why don't you come over to dinner? Why don't I have you in places where you can't be behind closed doors with your abusive piece of shit husband? If he swashbuckles in and takes her out of the house, what benefit is that to her within the structure of the world that they live in? I think that's very true. And I think one of the things that this movie is very smart about is that it's not a binary, right? It's not just action, not action. The point of the scene between Kurt and the oldest son is this sort of same thing of like, what is right action? Kurt has a whole speech about how waiting is the worst thing for him. Waiting for the right time to action drives him insane. One time he was in the Spanish Civil War and had to wait two days for the planes to exhaust themselves and literally started trying to reach into the sky and grab the planes because he just couldn't take waiting anymore. But you gotta. Yeah. And I think clearly the movie thinks that David and the mother, Fanny, could be doing more to fight fascism, (laughs) that they are sort of comfortable in their current position in life. But it does also think they're fundamentally good people who want to be doing more to fight fascism. They just genuinely don't understand what actions they should be taking. Or that even action is theirs to take. I don't think that they're aware of Count Brankovic's acquaintances. I don't think that they're aware that one of the things that is really shitty about their next door neighbor is he's a fascist collaborator. But what I will say about them is that when they are faced with making a decision quickly and one that is very high stakes they don't flinch at all when martha says that she's leaving the count in the middle of the living room before he gets murdered david's like well i guess if that's the case then that's what we're doing (laughs) and he accepts that that was her decision to make but is immediately there to support her And also the matriarch of the family is like, well, I've got this amount of money in the safe and we'll write a check if it's going to cost $10,000. And it ends up they don't need to spend that money and there is a different requirement of them, but they are ready, willing, and able to throw whatever they have behind it. They just don't know what to do. Yeah, I think especially when it comes to Fanny, so often in this movie, I was thinking about the sort of resistance wine moms of the last four years and the eagerness to classify them either as all good or all bad, as like the, the saviors of the Democratic Party, or these fair-weathered, boring, normie wine moms that don't actually care about progressivism. Whereas this movie is willing to go like, Fanny is kind of a rich piece of shit. Like, there's a lot wrong with Fanny. But fundamentally, she is an ally in the fight against fascism. Right. It is willing to give both sides of that and to say she is not a dedicated anti-fascist in the way that Kurt is, but she actually does believe and is willing to act on her principles. Yeah. And that's important. (laughs) That counts for a lot. Well, I mean, the thing about wine moms generally is if you give them something to do, they'll do it. Right. They just don't know where to start. So that's what I'm saying to all of you who criticize wine moms. Tell them what to do. Show them where to sign up. Yeah. (laughs) Teach them how to use Zoom. Yeah. So they can go to phone banks. Because they will do it so much faster than all the people that we were... Anyway, don't need to start a huge thing. But I do just want to say, I think it would have been so easy for this movie to have a simpler arc for her. To have her started out very cleanly, well, she's bad and stupid and doesn't understand that there are problems in the world, and then by the end of the film, her eyes are opened. And, like, that is her arc still, but it is not 
that clear cut and black and white. Well, no, I wouldn't say that she's bad and stupid. I mean, she is the widow of a Supreme Court justice and seems pretty clued up on a lot of political stuff. She's just not that involved in it. Right. She seems educated and aware of current events, but doesn't feel like it's her place. I think she even says at one point that she and David have been very insulated from these things. Right. And have, you know, kind of enjoyed their insulation, which, yeah, who wouldn't? Dealing with Nazis fucking sucks. (laughs) What does David do... It just occurs to me that I have it, no idea what David does. Like, does he have a job? He seems to work in... The, I think he's a lawyer, but I don't quite know where. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because she's visiting him in the office when she sees the picture of her late husband and can go one door over and be like, get my wife's husband an important job in government, engineering. That's all I know. Good day, sir. And, like, feel comfortable that that'll probably work out for her. Right. And there's the plaque on the wall as she goes in that is her dead husband in his honor. So, yeah, there it's something like that. Maybe it's just at the Department of Justice. Yeah, that wouldn't shock me. And it also wouldn't shock me that they went into a building and it very clearly showed what building it was. And we didn't fully process it. They actually had to cut a lot of stuff out of this film because of the war because they didn't want to show too much of D.C., <laughs> Yeah. The government censors had to take a lot of exterior shots out because there was a restriction on filming government buildings, even the outsides. Yeah. Wartime! (laughs) Oh, yeah. It's crazy. I don't know. I am going on and on about this movie because I just feel like above everything, it's interesting. You fell into this movie. You lost track of time watching this movie, which like never fucking happens for Screen Test of Time. Never! Usually I'm like, oh god, I'm like an hour into this movie and I pause it to go get a snack or something and it... it, (laughs) And it's like five. It's, yeah, it's been ten minutes. And the opposite happened with this, where it had been like 40 minutes and I paused it to go to the bathroom and... I thought that I was only 20 minutes in. Yeah. It's very engrossing. For sure. As I said, I think it's 30 minutes from when Kurt shoots the count to the end of the film. Does not feel like it at all. Feels like a real swift, like, 510. Because it's just deeply interesting. The whole movie sort of feels that way. Even when we watch good movies like Casablanca, I feel like I don't lose track of time because I'm just trying to hold on to it for as long as possible. I'm just like, oh God, how much longer do I get to watch a good movie? (laughs) And the fact that this movie kind of snuck up on me, I often, when I feel like we're winding up to a bad movie, start to consider like, how can I express how this movie is bad in an interesting way? So I'm not just saying the, so I'm not just saying this movie was weird for the 100th time. (laughs) And I sort of started idly sketching out like, what shit am I going to say about Betty Davis in this movie? To just sort of fill 25 minutes, it's, oh, shit, this is actually really interesting. Like, they're really going in. Kurt has such a great speech about the moment he realizes he has to dedicate his life to anti-fascism, that he's from this small town that has a small local festival. And one year, you know, he comes back from World War One, and the festival just sort of keeps getting worse and worse as Germany just keeps getting worse and worse. And then one year, he sees a bunch of men beaten to death on the street by Nazis and just goes, well, that's the end of the festival forever. And that's the end of my life outside of anti-fascism. That's what my whole life is now. And fair enough. Yeah. I feel like there's so many movies that we've watched that are just like slap some Vaseline on the lens, have somebody say something dramatic about like, and then I watched a man die. And then it's like, done, cut, print. What is on our poster? Really bad fonts and a big picture of Betty Davis? Great. Instead, this movie, it's weirdly similar to Casablanca, both in that it has such a precise and lived-in sense of what it is like to fight fascism, but also in the sense of it feels like a minor miracle this is a good movie. It feels like it's kind of slapdash in some ways. It feels like it's more than the sum of its parts in the same way that Casablanca is. And while I am going to argue this is sort of a completely forgotten gem, and I don't know why, it's not Casablanca. It's not quite that good, but it's very good. Well, no. I mean, part of the reason why it's not that good, I mean, it is a good movie. It's not as good as Casablanca. At its core, it is a drawing room play. Yeah. There are bigger things at stake than what usually happens in a drawing room play, but it is a drawing room play. 
And the vast majority of the characters in this are not nearly as interesting as the ones in Casablanca. And Kurt is really the center of what is interesting in this film. And he's very understated, which is not the case of anyone in Casablanca. <laughs> Except maybe the anti-fascist resistance leader. Yeah, this movie also will kind of bowl over into melodrama in a way Casablanca really doesn't. That like the very first scene where you're sort of establishing the deal with the Count and the Countess has a very soap opera equality to it, where it's like, now you listen to me. You're going to go where I say and do what I say, and you're going to like it. And grabs her wrist, and she's like, no, no! How could you? You're so terrible. And eventually, how could he? He is so terrible. He's a rat. He's a boot-licking rat. <laughs> right. But at first, I think it was sort of one of those things that made it hard for me to like get a beat on this movie, was that the tone can be very high melodrama in this movie if Kurt is not on the scene. Yes. Because he really grounds stuff in a real lived-in experience. Like, I thought a lot about Ta-Nehisi Coates' writing about anti-racism in America and how centered it is on bodies and effects, physical effects on physical bodies and centering things in that, and how much this movie cares about Kurt's injuries, talks about the specific ways in which he has been injured in the fight against fascism. He has gunshot wounds in his, his... hands have been broken. Yeah, his hands have been broken and don't quite heal. He doesn't have fine motor skills in his hands anymore. He's got some bullet wounds that haven't quite healed, so he has a tough time walking, and it very clearly aches him to get up and down. And it has clearly taken a physical toll on the guy that comes through in the performance, and that even if he's not talking... Just seeing him as this physical person in the world next to the other characters really grounds them in, yeah, but also remember this is a world where that guy had all that shit happen to him. So, like, keep that in mind. <laughs> He's very tired. Yeah. And you get this sense from his performance of someone who is absolutely exhausted and does not get to stop working. Yeah. And I can really relate to that. <laughs> yeah. I think most people at this point in history can, sadly, but most of us are not tired for quite as noble reasons. It's more like, well, because that's how capitalism works. But to go back to what you were saying about melodrama, I do find that there are a number of times where I feel like Betty Davis's performance needs to be reined in. Yeah. It is the best performance we've seen her give. It is the least melodramatic performance we have seen her give. It is still a little too Betty Davis, though. I totally agree. I think it comes together in the third act where it's kind of impossible for her to be too melodramatic. Her husband has just killed a man and she will never see him again. And she can go full Betty Davis and it is fine. <laughs> And, and what's interesting, actually, is I feel like that's where she's the most restrained, and it's only because her normal level is now sensible. <laughs> yeah. We've seen her go Betty Davis up to 11, and this is just like a normal, like, six or seven of her setting. <laughs> I think the performance works in a weird way, but I think it's the most jarring in sort of the second act where she's continually snapping at her mom. Fanny's like, I just don't understand why you couldn't have wired me for some money. And she's like, oh, you never understand. You'll never understand what it's like to have to go through the streets and sew your own. And it's like, that, you could just tell her. Like, why are you Why are you doing this? It doesn't quite connect. Yeah, there's some point before the shooting, but after the reveal where she has some kind of other monologue where they have to close up on her face a lot. And it really bothered me because this woman has been in Germany and with this man for 17 years, the last seven of which he has been a vigilante anti-fascist, which means she has been too. How is she losing it this fast? How has she not drawn attention to them if this is her reaction? I think it still works. I don't think it works as intended. I think that there's a lot of stuff that you have to sort of explain away about Betty Davis's performance. And the script is good enough you can. Well, she needed to put it down, too. And then she comes home. She's had this fraught relationship with the mother. The mom didn't approve of the marriage originally. She was coming here to put it down, and it turns out she can't. And she's losing it. There are things you can say about this character relationships and the way Betty Davis is playing it that make it 
work okay, but I do kind of wish it was not Betty Davis and was someone else. Uh, Because I think someone else would have maybe done it better. Grading on the Betty Davis curve, it's a great performance. Grading on the curve for this film and what I would like to see in it, it's not. Yeah. But it is nowhere near the most irritating. Actually, I'll say that for it. It's not irritating. At no point was I like, oh, Jesus, can this woman please stop being so histrionic? That's exactly it, is there are large portions of this movie where the performance doesn't work, but I'm never like, boo, get off the screen, (laughs) which I- (laughs) Which I felt a lot (laughs) about her in a lot of movies. Yeah. (laughs) This would not be the choice that I would have made or directed someone to make, but yeah, okay, well- like you said, it is explainawayable. I would prefer just not to have to. <laughs> and once again, like with Little Foxes, I think I need to like reverse, I don't know, or read up more on her Wikipedia page because apparently she's just a sterling person in real life, reads this, a whole bunch of people pass on it because it is a kind of minor part. She is not the lead of this film, despite what the billing and what the poster would have you believe. She in fact, said that she shouldn't have top billing. She's like, I'm not the star of this. I'm not the lead. But they knew that she would sell tickets. So, But there were also quite a number of female leads who passed on this film because it was kind of too small of a part. And she read the script in progress. And as a, you know, FDR Democrat, when you really didn't have a lot of other options of what kind of Democrat you were going to be. <laughs> and somebody who, you know, actively talked about how Nazis suck. She was immediately on board. And apparently the only person she had a difficult relationship with was the lady who played Fanny, who was a lifelong Republican. And I can let that slide. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah. Same. So you get the sense that Betty Davis, this wasn't quite a passion project for her, but that she clicked in on it. That she really understood, even if maybe the performance was not what I would have wanted or would have given if I were in her shoes, that she really locked in on what was important about this movie and got it and wanted to support that. And she's not showboating. She's not trying to steal scenes. Yeah. When she needs to sit there and be present in the shot and not pull focus, she does it. She's not trying to be the star of this film because she's not, and she accepts that. And I'm just saying that my main criticism of this film is that I didn't love her performance across the board. I do kind of think that if you did get, say, a Helen Hayes, who was considered for the part instead of Betty Davis, then maybe we would remember this film maybe a little bit more. Because <laughs> I don't think it's remembered as one of the great Betty Davis performances, because it's, I mean, it is for us, because she's not really been great in anything else, but it's not like a Betty Davis movie. Right. Betty Davis is just here. She works in the last act and before that. And it's fine. And the rest of the movie is more than good enough to make up for it. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I'm going to give it a seven. Oh, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm going to go up to eight. I'm going to go up to an eight for this because it's real good. Even though her central performance is not that great, she's not really the lead. Paul Lucas is the lead and he's fucking killing it. Yeah. Uh, I don't love the directing. Uh, that's fair. Set design is all right, although they're kind of reusing sets. I think the German embassy is the same party set from like three different movies we've watched at this point. Yeah, I mean, the sets were forgettable, but they didn't need to be terribly memorable. It's not really that kind of film. I just, I did not love the directing. I thought that there were a lot of strange choices for shot setup. I don't think it takes away from the film being engaging or enjoyable and the script is absolutely fantastic i think it's filmed like a standard melodrama it just isn't a standard melodrama so it works but i think one of the things that gives that immediate sense of we should have dramatic soap opera strings under all of this is how it's shot because it's very much shot in that shot two shot reverse shot okay done kind of a way really rapidly shooting trying to get all the coverage and then just go Every time there's sort of an attempt at an interesting shot, you do say, but why, though? (laughs) You just put a camera in a weird place to put a camera in a weird place. Right. It doesn't have any of the the fact that some of the very fine cinematographers that we've seen who go, you know what? What if we just put the camera in the far corner of the floor and shoot upward where there's a reason for that and not just like, well, can we do something? Yeah. 
what if we put the camera here for this one shot and then kind of chickened out about it? Because there's never any interesting shot that happens for longer than a few seconds. I know I'm being harsh on it, but I just feel like from a directorial standpoint, I don't think that it is. um, I'm not impressed by the artistry of it. It's interesting because we're both, I mean, we both agree this is a better movie, but it's kind of the same argument we were having about Little Foxes, but in reverse, because that was the one where I was like, well, you sort of can't have a weirdly central thing to the movie not operate and then say it's okay because everybody's trying their best and all the details are nice. Whereas in this one, I'm going, but the details are so nice. (laughs) Just all the dialogue in this is so good. It's so well written and it is so well performed by a lot of the central performances and even betty davis's performance is sort of more good than bad she has more good line deliveries than bad because act three is luckily where her part really ramps up right but i do i uh, no i'm gonna stick to eight we're both agreed watch this movie right oh yeah yeah it's great i mean honestly unless you are just a super picky pain in the ass who watches a movie every week and then does a whole podcast about (laughs) reviewing it I don't think that you're going to be bothered by the direction. The director was actually predominantly a Broadway theater director. He directed two films, one of which was this. I don't know what the other one was. It has that feel. Yeah. It feels like somebody who is a theater director directing a film. Yeah. He is never more comfortable than when they are literally in that parlor. Yeah. That's when he knows what he's doing. That's the best time. Yeah. Artistically, that is absolutely the best directed part of the film. And the other ones are like, oh, well, we've got to go and have the camera move around. And it feels very static. Like when they go to the embassy and there's a party or whatever happening, it feels very uncomfortable until they get into whatever the back room is to play poker. And then it feels like, okay, now we are in a setting I understand. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I will say is that it very much emphasizes the difference between theatrical directing and film directing, which is not a thing that we've really contended with for several years on this podcast. Yeah. Like people figured out that they're not the same thing about five years ago. Yeah, I would say that's true. And I would say 38 ish. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there are bits and pieces of it before then, but I do think that 38-ish is when they sort of start trying to figure out how to marry the important parts of both film and theatrical directing and be good at both instead of just picking one or the other. Right. And yeah, I think you were right to say that this is competently, boringly directed. Like it just it just sort of puts the camera at the action and goes in a way that we've generally moved past uh, by this point. Yeah. But yeah, watch it. I mean, it's good. Yeah. It's a good movie. Uh, For next week, though, do we have a good movie? One never knows. We are watching Madame Curie. Right, which is the one that is weirdly ghostwritten by Aldous Huxley, right? Yes. Very strange. I guess we'll figure out what's going on there. I'm really interested in seeing what a biopic about Marie Curie ghostwritten by Aldous Huxley is like. Yeah. Maybe it gets real weird. God, I hope so. I hope she just goes on a weird drug bender, and that's like the whole last third of the movie. Uh, yeah. I would be okay with that. But tune in next week to find out. And until then... This was a movie. I mean, Susan is right to point out that it was directed a little bit like a play, but it's a movie. It's definitely a movie. A plus. (laughs) At movieing. I mean, that's really kind of a pass-fail. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> it passed with flying colors at being a movie. Yeah, it definitely did. <laughs> Goodbye, Bye, everybody. everybody. Going away now. I don't think he'll ever come back anymore. Never, never, never.